0: You know, the ark of God has an interesting story. If you remember, and of course, we're in the kings of Israel. We're going to be studying the life of King David. But I begin to think about the ark. I just want to go back a little bit before David was king. Actually, even go back before Saul was king. Eli was the priest. There were no kings at this time. His two sons, Hopni and Phinehas, were wicked, evil sons. And Eli refused to discipline his own children. And he was old, 90 years old. It says he was severely overweight. And he basically let his sons do everything. And something happened that had never happened. Israel was defeated in battle. And in the midst of the battle with the Philistines, to make things even worse, they lost the Ark of God. They had brought the Ark, believing that the the Ark was a symbol of God's presence. And when they brought the Ark in, it says that all of the people all of the army all of the soldiers they were shouting and just excited and the enemy said what is that noise what's that uh, what's going on and and they said the israelites have brought their god and this is the same god that defeated the egyptians the same god that brought down the walls of jericho the same god that has done amazing things and they were fearful And so they said to one another, the Philistines, they said, we need to fight extra hard today. And Israel lost the battle. Not because God wasn't a mighty God, but because there was sin in the camp. Because the sin of Phinehas and Hopni, And they were basically in leadership. They lost the battle and lost the ark. And the Philistines brought the ark into their camp, and they put it in their temple where they worshiped the god Dagon. And the next morning, they walked into their temple, and their god Dagon had fallen over and was prostrate before the ark. (laughs) I think God doesn't have a sense of humor. They propped their god back up, and the next morning, it was back on his face. (laughs) <laughs> and so they didn't know what to do and so they moved it out and then they began to recognize that everybody in their Philistine army all the people began to get sores and boils and diseases and they, were begin, they, they began to die and the ones that weren't dying were they were just filled with sores and they said we've got to get this ark out of here Their God is mightier than ours. They recognized they had taken this ark and it didn't belong to them and it was more powerful than they could imagine. And so they sent it back on a cart pulled by a young cow. And when it got to the Israelites, they peered inside and God struck all of those dead that peered inside. And they took the ark and they put it in the home of Abinadab. And here's the most amazing thing. It stayed in his home for 20 years. And this is my question. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. All during the reign of King Saul... He never mentions the ark. Worship continues. Sacrifices continue. They keep doing everything they were supposed to be doing, but nobody bothers to go get the ark that is the symbol of the presence of God. And as I begin to read that story again this week, prepping and getting ready for the King David, the Lord spoke to my heart. And he said, the nation of Israel learn to become comfortable without the presence of God. And as soon as I felt the Spirit of the Lord say that, he said, many churches, not all, thank God, but many churches today have learned to do church without the presence of God. And they've become satisfied and comfortable. And they don't miss it. And I wonder how many people even understand what it means to have the presence of God in your life. And I thought, Lord, may our church, may the church of Jesus Christ, never fall into that trap like they did. They just, as soon as the ark was back into the Philistines' camp, they just kept going, just kept doing their thing. Sacrifices kept going, they kept making the bread, kept burning the incense. But no presence of God. No ark. And it sits in a home of Abinadab. And then, praise God, King David. And you know the story we heard last week about King Saul. And the end of King Saul's life was not good. And as soon as he dies, David who God had already chosen to be king, becomes king of Israel. And guess what one of the first things David did? Go get that ark. You see, David was a worshiper. David learned to enjoy the presence of God out in the field watching sheep. He learned the value of the presence of God while he was all by himself. He learned to pray, play the harp and worship God. He loved the presence of God. And as soon as he became king, here he was. Coming to Abinadab's home. Now, the problem is, he didn't do enough research and didn't ask the priest and didn't do some research into the word to find out how you're supposed to carry that ark. So he just came up with the most practical situation, put it on a cart. Now, that's, you know, good old common sense. That thing is heavy, just put it on a cart. Pull it with an oxen. Problem is, God said it was never to be moved that way. It was only to be moved, carried on the shoulders of the priest, carried with those rods covered with gold. And so they got a short distance, and, and, and they hit a bump in the road, and the whole ark began to teeter. And, and all of a sudden, one of the men assigned to make sure it was okay he reached out and touched the ark to make sure it didn't fall over. And his name was Yuza. God struck him dead just like that. David went, oh, my goodness, what is going on? And he just said, I, we, we got to stop this. And he put it in the home of Obed-Edom. But, you know, David didn't give up. He wasn't going to let it sit there for 20 years. So, what he did is he got some research and studied the Word and went back to Leviticus and Exodus and found out how God prescribed that the ark was to be carried. And he says, Okay, we did it wrong. And he got the Levites and he got them sanctified and got the priests and put it on their shoulders and carried it in. Into Jerusalem. And it says that he took off his kingly robes. And he was dancing and worshiping, and all of Israel was worshiping and singing and waving their hands and excited that the presence of God was finally back where it's supposed to be. And David set up a special tent in Jerusalem. On a hill called Mount Zion. It was the backside of the mountain. You know, Jerusalem is built on basically seven mountains, seven hills. And his home was built on Mount Zion, but on the other side, he put up a tent, a tabernacle tent. And he put the ark in there so that it could be pres- pres- done as, as prescribed in God's word. And it says all of Israel worshipped and danced and celebrated and waved and rejoiced. And I thought to myself that the church of Jesus Christ would be so hungry and thirsty for God's presence that we would just understand what the presence of God is. And that we would desire the presence of God more than anything else. So we're going to study the life of King David today. We're in a series called the Kings of Israel. And we're looking at the lives of the major kings of Israel. And I believe there are things in the Old Testament that God uses to speak to our heart. And as I look at the life of King David I see five things that I feel like the Spirit of the Lord wants us to see. Number one, David had great humility. He had great humility, and he had real humility, it was not fakie humility. Look at two of the verses. This is in his prayer when he was crowned king. Look at what he said. I love this, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed, O oh Lord, who am I? O oh, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And now, sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else, you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty. Do you deal with everyone this way? Have you ever thought that? You bless everybody like this? What more can I say to you? You know what your servant is really like. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? God knows what you're really like, and he still loves you. You know what your servant is really like, sovereign Lord, because of your promise and according to your will, you have done all these great things and have made them known to your servant. And then look at 25 and 26. And now, O Lord, I am your servant. Do as you promised concerning me and my family. Confirm it as a promise that will last forever. And may your name be honored forever. So that everyone will say, the Lord of heaven's armies is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David continue before you forever. And as you study the life of David, he knew where his strength was. He proved that. You know, everybody talks about how David killed Goliath. But you know the reason David was confident to kill Goliath. And he explained it to Saul. He said, listen, when I was out in the field, and when I was taking care of the sheep, a lion would come, and a bear would come, and God would help me, and I would just grab that lion by my bare hand, and I'd just tear him apart. And we're not talking about the biggest, strongest-looking guy. He said, compared to all his brothers, he was just kind of small. But he knew where his strength came from. And I want to tell you, folks, that's what humility is. Humility is not somebody that acts humble. You say, it's not? No, the problem is you can fake that. You can act so humble... All the time, be thinking highly of yourself. (laughs) And the problem is, is that humility is not an attitude of meekness as much as it is the recognition of where your strength really comes from. The knowledge that it is not of you, that all of your strength comes from God, that Nothing really come from you. The acknowledgement that God is strong in you. And when faced with Goliath, he said, My God is bigger and stronger than Goliath is. And the reason he wasn't worried about the size of Goliath was that he saw his God as bigger. And that's what humility really is. It's the recognition of where your strength really is. You can fake humility. You can fake meekness. But if you really know who God is, you really depend upon him for your strength, then you can walk in humility. And David did a lot of amazing things. He really did. But he knew where his strength was. The second thing I see in David's life, and that is David had a repentant heart. You know, everybody knows about David's sin. For over 4,000 years, people have been reading about David's sin. (laughs) How would you like for your sin to be broadcast and put down and read for the next 4,000 years? I wouldn't like that. But his sin of adultery and murder of Uriah was recorded and read by thousands and thousands of people over the years. But you know... The thing that is most important is not your past. But how do you respond when God grips your heart? And you probably remember the story of Nathan the prophet. And he comes to David and he talks to him about the rich person who steals someone's little sheep. Poor person, sheep. And David says, oh, I'm, you bring him here, man. I'm going to take care of him. We're going to kill that guy. We're going to really take care of him. And Nathan looked at him and said, you. You're the man. And he recognized. You know, because David loved the presence of God. He missed the presence of God. When you're in sin you miss the presence of God. You long for that sense of cleanness that comes when you know God. And I believe he hungered for God's presence. And you can tell by what David wrote not long after Nathan the prophet confronted him and David repented He wrote Psalm 51. I just want to read the first 13 verses. I know that's a lot, but it's powerful. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. You're des- but you desire honesty from the womb. Teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You've broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. And don't banish me from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And make me willing to obey you. And then I will teach your ways to rebels. And they will return to you. Powerful. You see, true repentance is not telling God what you did. Now, did you you notice that? In his prayer here, he doesn't say, Lord, I committed adultery and I murdered Uriah. Now, understand... To confess your sin is not to tell God what you did because he already knows. Confessing your sin is not an information situation. But what did he do? Real repentance is to acknowledge that what you did was sin against a holy God. That you were wrong. That you sinned and that your sin is against God. And you notice what David said. He said against you and you only have I sinned. Now, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against the nation of Israel. But sometimes you've got to learn to focus in and see where the real sin is. And his real sin was against a holy God that it had given him the trust of a position of kingship. And real repentance is to acknowledge what you did was wrong. And you know, 1 John, jumping in the New Testament, 1 John 1 verse 8 and 9 says this. It says, if we claim we have no sin, we're just fooling ourselves and we're not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all wickedness. And again, confessing our sin is to confess and say, Lord, I'm wrong. I just want to say this. If in the process of you, quote, repenting, you put the blame somewhere else. Lord, I'm sorry for what I did. But old so-and-so, they're the ones that made me do it. You just lost your forgiveness. You just wasted your breath. Well, Lord, I, I, I did that. But now the reason, Lord, I just want to explain to you, Lord, the reason that I did this. You just messed up. You're right back where you were before. Because the heart of repentance is not to blame someone else. It's to accept the blame. It's not to pass it off to somebody else. It's to say, I am sin. I am a sinner. I have done wrong. Against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. And I am guilty. Is it true that others influence us on our life? Sure. But we're still guilty. We are still responsible. And if we want true forgiveness, and if we really want forgiveness, To have a repentant heart. We've got to understand what God is looking for. He is looking for a heart of repentance. You know, God's not looking to rub it in us, make us suffer. He wants us to understand that sin is a sin against him. And that forgiveness comes when we're willing to confess that. David was a man. You know, David made a lot of mistakes. And this Adultery and the murder was just one of them. Messed up with the way he raised his kids. Didn't deal with uh, Absalom correctly. Didn't deal with Amnon correctly. He made a lot of mistakes. He is not a perfect king. But I want to tell you. He had a quick repenter. He had a heart of repentance. And if we're going to learn something from his life, then we have to be willing to say, Lord, give me a heart that's quick to repent, a heart that says, Lord, I am wrong. No one else, no other blame, I'm wrong. When you can do that, you can have a repentant heart. And you can move on. Thank God. God wants us to be able to move on in our life and have cleansing and forgiveness and restoration. That's what God wants. But so many times, I think about all the people that don't ever have forgiveness. And if you'll notice, first John 1 9 says. If we confess our sins to him. We're not called to confess to a man. Hello. You with me now? You don't confess to another man. We confess to him. That's where forgiveness comes from. We confess to God. Why? Because our sin is against God. And when you boil all the fat away. Sin is always the same thing. It's rebellion against God. It's us doing it our way. Now, the end result of sin might look different. It might be murder, anger, jealousy, hatred. It uh, might be attitude. might be a lot of different ways. But sin, in its essence, is rebellion against God. Doing it our way. David had a repentant heart. The third thing I see, and that is David loved God's presence. And I know we started out talking about the ark, but I just want to say what an amazing difference that can make in our life. You want to know something amazing? Remember the verse where God says David is a man after his own heart? I want to show you where that's at in case you don't remember. It's in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. Samuel is talking to Saul, King Saul. This is the context. But now your kingdom must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Before David ever became king, God looked. And what was he looking for? You know, they had a king who was tall in stature, tall and handsome, Saul. That didn't work out well. It wasn't the stature. He was looking for a man. It was after his heart. Someone asked me once, Brother Renee, what does that term, that phrase mean? A man after God's heart. It's a worshiper, it's a person who loves God's presence. It's a person that loves to be in God's presence, that loves to worship God, and refuses to be denied being in his presence. You know, I'm going to make a statement and have it written in your notes. When we love God's presence, it will attract God's attention more than our successes our failures. I want you to just consider that just for a moment. Consider that just for a moment. What's God really looking for? He's looking for you to love Him with all of your heart. And to express that from a simple, pure, clean I love you. And a lot of people, we get hung up on, well, Lord, I did this last week, and I did that last week, and I gave this amount, and I accomplished this, and I was able to do that, and I touched them, and I changed this. And we all want to tell God about our accomplishments and our successes. But I just want to tell you what he's really looking for. He's looking for your heart to be after God. We were, had our grandkids the other day. We just had the two little girls, Ellie and Allie. And so we went to Cane's for fried chicken. And uh, we always love having the grandkids, two little sweet little girls and so Allie's sitting with Vicky, and Elia's sitting right next to me and we're eating the fried chicken. And Elia looks up at me and says, Poppy, I love you so much. You're such a good poppy. My heart melted. She had thrown a tantrum earlier in the day. But when she said that, I could care less what she did. (laughs) She could have had anything she wanted. She just wasn't old enough to ask for it. But I want to tell you, that's the way God's heart is. He's not so much worried about what you did in the past, what you're going to do, your talents, your abilities, your achievements. He just wants you to say, Daddy, I love you. I love you, Dad. I love you. With all of my heart, Lord, I love you. And I just want to encourage you. Worship. Worship. We settle for so little sometimes. I just want to say, as a church, we have great worship. We have great worship. We have great opportunity to worship. But it is necessary that you avail yourself of that opportunity. Now, I grew up in a denominational church where I never raised my hands, and the motto was be still. And know that I'm God. So we were all still. We were still, still, still. And the quieter you could be, the better. And that's rigor. You know, I, I was a curious little kid when I was eight years old. I found a luggage tag. Everybody know what luggage tag with the two little wires that stick out of the luggage tag? Well, during church, I told my daddy I need to go use the bathroom. But what I really wanted to do was something I had never done before. I wanted to know what would happen when I stuck those two little wires in an electric socket. (laughs) I had always wanted to know So I snuck into the hallway of the church and I had that and I pulled that thing out and I stuck that thing. Thank God I was able to let go. My hands are all black. You know, the thing almost caught on fire. I'm still shaking and I'm hurting like crazy. And I go down. I say, Daddy. Daddy. Be still. Be still. I'm dying,
1: Daddy. I'm dying.
0: Be still. And I tried to tell him what I did, and he just said, be still. So the whole service, I just said, I just want to tell you, I never did it again. So, hey. Hey. I did learn. But God's plan was not for us to be still and quiet. His plan was for us to worship Him. And you know the best thing you can do? If you want to worship and enjoy His presence... Forget about everybody around you. That's the biggest hindrance to worship you can, you can do. Worrying about what anybody else thinks. Just love him and sing and worship. If you can't sing, just make noises and sing and make noises and worship God. And it's amazing. All those years growing up, I never raised my hands. But when I fell in love with him, it was the most natural thing in the world to just, man, they were just like antennas. They just went up. And nobody had to say, raise your hands. It's just, I was just it's a, it was a natural response of submission and surrender to God and telling him how much I loved him. David was a worshiper. Who loved God's presence. What a joy it is. The fourth thing. David forgot to guard his heart. We talked a minute ago about his mistake. Sin. But the real question is not so much what he did. The real question is why? Why? He had everything he wanted. He certainly didn't lack for anything. Why? Why steal another man's wife? Why murder your best friend to cover up your sin? My best answer is he didn't guard his heart. You know, Proverbs 4, verse 23 says this. It says, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. A lot of powerful truth there. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. David failed to guard his heart. Every person in here, I don't care how spiritual you may appear, but you are able to sin and go astray if you don't guard your heart. I do okay, how spiritual you look right now. You, me, we're all susceptible. We can all fall. That's the truth of it. The difference is you've got to guard your heart. And so if I'm going to ask myself the question, how do you guard your heart? I thought about that question a long time as I was preparing this. I was thinking, Lord... And I thought of so many things we could do to guard our heart. But I just narrowed it down to three things. Number one, surround yourself with the Word of God. The Word of God has to be paramount of importance in your life. You read it. You meditate on it. You study it. You see it. You think about it. You meditate on it. We sing it. It's the word of God becomes our life and it helps guard us. It's like a huge guard dog (laughs) around our life. If we will surround ourselves with the word of God, it's amazing how many times it will protect us from falling. The second thing I would say and that is attend church. Now a lot of people might question that priority. And the reason I say to guard our heart, we have to be accountable. And church was designed, among other things, number one, primarily to learn the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to to preach and understand and hear and learn and understand the Word of God. But one of the prime reasons for the church is to present us accountable one to another. And if you want to guard your heart, be in church. Develop friendships in church. Have relationships in church. Now again, I've said this many times. There's the difference between attending church, as in, you know, walking in five minutes to ten o'clock, and then rushing out so you can get in line at dinner right before the end of the service. That's attending church. But being a part of the church, being involved in church. Having friends at church, getting in a life group at church, getting involved in a ministry at church, developing your life around the local church. It's not that the church saves you, but the church church helps guard your heart. Iron sharpens iron. And that works for men and ladies. We help one another. And, and another reason I put that in there, and that is just plain old experience. From being here 38 years, I have seen this. My wife and I have talked about this numerous times. Over the years, we have seen this happen so many times. They're doing fine, and then they get out of church, and their life starts to go down. And all of a sudden their marriage falls apart. Their family falls apart. All kinds of things happen. But if they had just stayed in church. Just stayed in church. And had accountability. And I'm amazed how the enemy will work at getting you out of church. And you will never have the perfect church. But... Be in church. Be in church. It'll help you to guard your heart. And then the last thing, going right back to where we talked about a minute ago, enter into worship whenever you have the opportunity. I know I just talked about that, but I'll just say it one more time. It will help guard your heart if you will be a worshiper. And a worshiper is, more than, is someone that does more than sing the songs. Understand, you can stand out there and you can look up and you can see the words and you can sing the songs and not be a worshiper. Everybody with me? You know what I'm talking about? And I've already figured out there is nothing that I can do to make you be a worshiper. <laughs> now, I have wanted to do some things. It doesn't work. But I will say this. Parents, you can teach your kids to be worshipers. You can teach your kids to be worshipers. And I, you know, I've heard parents say this. They say, well, you can't make your kids worship God. You can't. Well, I want to tell you, as long as they're eating your food (laughs) and in your household, you can say you're there. You're right there, and you are going to stand up, you're going to put that stupid phone down, and you are going to sing and you're going to worship God, and you're going to smile. <laughs> if you want to eat after supper, or eat eat today you mean we would use food as a weapon absolutely. I mean, we're parents. That's what we do. Our job is to teach children what's important in life. And church and worship is important. And, yeah, many times, told to sing. Sing louder. I'm singing. Boy, you ever notice... When I sing, sometimes I sing a little too loud. Sometimes my wife actually, we go to another church sometimes or what, and I start singing, my wife will give me the, in the, because I'm singing too loud. And I'll drown everybody else around me out. Yeah, and they'll all turn around and look at me like, what's going on? Well, all my life, sing loud. And it caught on. So, guard your heart. Three simple things. I thought of ten things that I could have said, but if I'm going to narrow it down to three things, surround yourself with the Word of God, attend church, and be a worshiper. Enter into worship. And then the last thing I want to say, and that is from the life of David... David reminds us that God seeks to restore us and use us. I told you last week, Saul's life didn't end well. Well, I just want to tell you, David's life ended well. God used him to write the book of Psalms, almost all the book of Psalms, and most of that was written after he sinned. David's sin was not the end of the story. David's failures was not the final chapter in his life. And that is God's way of saying to you that you may have messed up, but that's not the end of your story. That may be the beginning of your story, but it is not the end of your story. Why? Because God wants to forgive you and restore you and use you. Thanks be to God that God is a God who restores us. It's what He wants to do. It's who He is. He loves you. And He wants to restore you and make you into who He wants you to be. He is a God of restoration. Now remember, I'm just going to remind you. We don't have to go back and read it. But remember what David wrote in verse 13 of Psalm 51. We read it. He said, Lord... He asked all these things, and he said, Lord, then I'm going to teach other rebels, and they're going to walk in your ways. And I find that amazing, because that's one of the main things God loves to do, is God wants to use you to help others in areas that you've messed up in. Your testimony becomes the area that God wants to use to help other people who are going through what you went through. 1 Corinthians. Look at this. Excuse me. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. It says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. Watch this. He comforts us. And all our troubles so that, why? So that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, when they're struggling, when they're wallowing in the middle of their sin and their failure, we will be able to give them the same comfort, the same help that God has given us. God wants to use your testimony to help others pick up their life and go on. It's one of the reasons He wants to restore you. He wants to use you. He wants to use you to be a blessing to other people. You may say, Lord, how could you use me? And you begin to think of all the terrible things you've done in your life. And you begin to think of all your messes and your failures and and everything. Every one of those are an opportunity for God to use you. Every mistake you've ever made is an opportunity for God to use you. To help someone else going through that same exact thing but you have to come to that place where you say lord i need your help first you must be restored and then you can help restore others i'm going to ask you to bow your heads in prayer father oh lord lord jesus there's so much for us to learn so much for you to speak to us about the life of David the same Holy Spirit that David cried out for and asked you not to take the Holy Spirit away from him that same Holy Spirit is present right here in this building right here in our lives That same Holy Spirit wants to restore people in this room. There are people, Lord, that are hurting and broken, who've messed their lives up. Maybe they've done what David did. Maybe they've done worse. Maybe it's not as bad. But, Lord, we've all failed. We've all messed up. We've all fallen short. And, Lord, we come to you this morning. And say, Lord, Lord, help us. Help us. Restore us, oh Lord. We desperately need you. And I ask if you would to stand to your feet. this morning and you need God to restore you doesn't matter what failures you have in your life if you need God to restore you forgive you I'm going to ask you to make your way down to the front pray with me right here you're going to sing that again I'd like you to sing it all the way from the beginning that first verse of that you would be willing to say lord i need you to restore me i feel like the spirit of the lord said there are people here that are broken that are hurting god wants to restore you this morning he wants to give you a new clean heart maybe you need to be born again maybe you need to start over again but god's saying if you need to be restored this morning i want you to make your way out of your chair come to the front and let's pray together for God to do a work of restoration in your heart. Let's sing it. Lord,
1: I come. I confess. Bowing here. Come on.
0: You want to be restored this morning?
1: Without you.
0: Yes. Come on. Just step out. Yeah. You want to be restored, would you come? That guides my heart. I need to do all. sing that second
1: verse
0: of that yes anybody else while we're waiting we want to pray together but before we do would you come just be obedient to the Holy Spirit you need to be restored this morning oh God I need restoration in my heart I need to be restored Lord come Holy Spirit we need you Lord like the Spirit of the Lord. There's somebody, I don't know if you're at the front or you're still out there, but you've been hurt. feel like just a gut punch. Just taking the life out of you. You've said to the Lord this week, Lord, how can I ever recover? How can I ever recover, Lord? will I ever be the same again? God wants you to know, not only will you be be the same, but you'll be better. He will make you better. Whenever God restores, He makes you better than you were before. That's the principle of restoration. He doesn't just make you the way you were, He makes you better than you were. Because now it's His Holy Spirit working on the inside of you. Working his will and his plan and his purpose in your life. I'm going to ask everybody down here and anybody else out there in congregation if you want to pray with us. But let's just raise our hands before the Lord Prayer, pray a prayer restoration. Lord Jesus, I love you. I ask you this morning to restore my heart, oh God. I love you. I desire to be a worshiper. Give me a repentant heart. Help me, Lord, in the areas that I have failed. Restore me. Use me, Lord, to be a blessing to others. Help me, Lord, to comfort others in the same area that I have been comforted. In the name of Jesus, I confess Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life. I claim His blood is the forgiveness of my sin. I am complete in Jesus Christ. I know that I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I acknowledge Your blood as the complete payment for my sin. Thank you, Lord, for restoring me this morning. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. In the name of Jesus, help me, Lord, to know you and to send your presence in my life. I will never be the same. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your great mercy.